Welcome to The God Solution, a place where we discuss solid evidence for the Christian faith and interviews with leading Christian apologists. Each week, you'll be encouraged in your faith and equipped to defend it and share it in your daily life. You can find out more about The God Solution at GodSolutionShow.com. Welcome to The God Solution, where we discuss answers to humanity's questions about God and God's answers for humanity's questions. I'm Nate Herbst. Today we're going to do something a little bit different. I'm going to play an MP3 for you of a recent message that we heard at our Best Facts Apologetics Conference. We had Dr. Collins there talking about the discovery of Sodom. It's an incredible, incredible message. It's going to leave you uh, in awe of the veracity of God's Word, so I hope that you'll enjoy hearing from Dr. Collins. Without any further ado, let's get right into his message on finding the biblical city of Sodom. This will be the first part of a two-part show. So let's jump right into it. Why Sodom? Genesis is the most doubted book in the Bible. And so here you have a book that doesn't get a lot of credibility, historical credibility in, this, in the scientific or historical world. On the other hand, here you have a city mentioned in the most doubted book in the Bible and a story that is doubted to be true. Fire out of the sky, consumed a city at the order of Yahweh. Um, they just don't believe it. Next to Noah's Ark, which is not connected to archaeology in any way, shape, or form at this present time because nobody knows where it is. Next to Noah's Ark, here's one in the book of Genesis that if we can get to it, excavate it, look at it, measure it, and demonstrate reasonably that it actually existed and that this, these events occurred, there you go. That really would set some of our liberal critics back on their heels. And by the way, it is. And it's going to get worse. Because we have some stuff that, that we're working on uh, that uh, uh, scholars, scientists from six different secular universities are working with us on. That is the airburst event. I'll introduce it a little bit, but we can't even really talk about it because it's going to wind up in a major uh, journal publication, and they don't want to have a bunch of this stuff out there already because Sodom, obviously, when this is done, Sodom will not be mentioned. It'll just be the something like they'll, they'll call it a scientific name. It'll be the uh, three-point... 7BKBP uh, uh, event. Anyway, if we can do this, we're down the road a bit in demonstrating. And this just might be, I've had so many people come up to me over the last few, few years and say, you know what, my son or my cousin, somebody, um, I talked to him about that. And Long story short, eventually that, that was the thing that sort of turned them back to the Bible and they either recommitted their lives to Christ or they became a Christian. It was just one of the, and that's all apologetics is about, is getting people around that hump, that, that obstacle. And this just might be that for some people. How do you find Sodom? You could have done it. I guarantee if it had struck your fancy, and you wanted to do it, you could have done it and been standing up here doing the same thing I'm doing. It's real easy. Here it is. Right time, right place, with the right stuff. Three things, simple. Place, time, and stuff. Now let's go through it. What's the right place 
for Sodom. Here's the geography. Of course, since it's only mentioned in the Bible, you've got to go to the Bible for the geography. So let's go to it. Because in the Bible, for every subject upon which the Bible touches, there are primary passages and secondary passages. You could even say maybe there are tertiary pass- passages. A primary passage is a passage that is specifically written by the writer or sp- spoken by the speaker in the passage, specifically to address the subject at hand. So if you're going to talk about prayer, you're not going to to model prayer for Christians by looking at Jesus' experience of prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. That's his unique experience. It's not meant to be extrapolated to anyone else but him. If you want to go to the primary passage or a primary passage on prayer, where will you go? You know, Jesus' disciples walked up to him one day and they looked at Jesus and they said, Lord, teach us to pray. And Jesus then said, okay, guys, pray after this, after this fashion. Our Father, and he taught them. That prayer is specifically given to teach us how to pray. That's a primary passage. Well, if you're going to find Sodom, you want to go to the passage, if there is one, that is specifically written consciously by the writer to take you to the location of Sodom. And there is just one. It is specifically written, structured, to walk you across the landscape and get you to the city of Sodom. There is no other passage. This is the primary one. All other passages that deal with Sodom, any aspect of it, would be considered geographically secondary to this. Here it is, Genesis 13, 1 through 12. Um, so lock down on this one. Put this in your head if anybody asks you. And by the way, go back and read it on your own and study it. I'm going to give you the, the short version. This is the, this is the condensed version. This is the Reader's Digest version of this passage. I've cut out all the personal, incidental stuff and just kept in the geography. So here it is. So let's read it together. So Abram went up from Egypt to the Negev. Lot went with him. From the Negev, he went from place to place until he came to Bethel, to the place between Bethel and Ai. Lot looked up and saw that the whole plain of the Jordan was well watered, like the garden of Yahweh, like the land of Egypt toward Zoar. So Lot chose for himself the whole plain of the Jordan and set out toward the east. Abram lived in the land of Canaan, while Lot lived among the cities of the plain and pitched his tent near Sodom. There it is. Now, let's, let's follow a map. Let's, let's make this thing a map. Put it on the geography, put it on the landscape, and find it. Now, there are, there's one word here we need to focus in on initially, the word plain. Unfortunately, in all the translations, it is, not, it is wrong. It is not the word, it does not mean plain. This word does not mean plain. Uh, there are a whole lot of other words in the Bible that do mean plain. But this is not one of them. This is the word kikar. Kikar. Now, what does kikar mean kikar means a circle or a disc it is used outside the bible a lot there are a lot of near eastern manuscripts in akkadian and other languages in egyptian 
that use the term kikar, and always and ever in these it means either simply a disc or a circle. In fact, in Egyptian it means to draw a circle in the sand with a stick. But it either means one of these two things uh, that the Bible also uses, and that is a talent of metal, it's a flat circular disc like a huge coin, of metal, a talent, Bible talks about talents of silver, talents of gold, and so on. By the way, a talent of gold weighs about 119 pounds. Okay. Um, or a circular flat loaf of bread. And in the Bible, 55 times out of 68 times this word is used in the Old Testament, 55 out of those 68 times it means either a talent or a, okay, let's update it, tortilla. <laughs> Okay, basically, a talent or a tortilla. That's what it means. It, outside the Bible, it never has any geographical meaning at all in any language, in any cognate uh, of the uh, Semitic languages. Now, 13 times in the Old Testament, it refers to a piece of real estate. By the way, this is called, and I don't know if I put that in there, but just to... Uh, Throw, add this one in. This is fun. Um, if, if for your after-dinner conversation, if it kind of dips, you know, it kind of slows down and dips, throw this in. Phenomenological secondary referent. <laughs> in linguistics, what that means is it's use a common term like table to refer to something else. We say, oh, let's go up and, and hang out on the mesa. In New Mexico, we do that, right? Um, what do we, in Texas, I mean, uh, Colorado, they do that too, right? You look at the, at the four-wheel drive maps, and there's this mesa and that mesa. Why do we call it that? Because it's a flat-top thing that looks like a table. The word table is not a geographical term, but we apply it. Well, boot heel of Italy, that sort of stuff. We call it that, because, but it's not a geographical term. This is the same thing. Kikar is not a geographical term at all, but the Bible uses it, applies it geographically. What does it refer to? I'll tell you what it refers to. It refers to the circular plain of the Jordan Valley north of the Dead Sea. You'll notice that in that passage we read, it's called the plain, the Kikar of Hayarden, the Jordan. The Kikar of the Jordan. By the way, what does Jordan mean? Do you know? Hayarden means... The descent or the descending of what? What's descending? Water, fresh water. This is the watershed. The Jordan ends, the descending ends when it hits the lowest surface on the face of the earth. You can't descend any further than the lowest spot on the face of the earth. That's the surface of the Dead Sea. When the Jordan hits the Dead Sea, that glob of water down there at the bottom of that slide, it's, a, it's over. The descending of the fresh water has ended and something else has happened. It has died and it is in another location altogether. So the, let's look at it from a little bit different angle. There's the kikar, the disc. There's this widened circular area. Now they didn't have satellite imagery in Abraham's time. But when you go and stand on it, when you drive to the middle of this thing and you stand there and you do a 360, you 
get the sense of it because the hills are narrow to the north. Southern Jordan, the Jordan Valley comes down narrowly. And then about 30 kilometers north of the Dead Sea, it widens out. And you can see the hills going out laterally like that. And you turn around and it closes back in on the Dead Sea. And you get the sense that you're sitting in a very shallow bowl or a plate with a green circle around you because of the agriculture on both sides of the river. It is the circle of the Jordan Valley, the disk. And here it is from a little bit different angle. The Jordan comes down, its channel overflows its banks, and that circle is very important because it's the best watered agriscape in the region. By the way, if you take the five key passages for the extent of the Jordan, it will say this, and I've sort of collated them together here. It says that the Jordan ends at the Bay of the Dead Sea at the mouth of the Jordan below Pisgah, which is Nebo. There it all is. So if these are the cities of the Kikar, of the Jordan, how do they wind up at the south end of the Dead Sea? Which is not the Jordan. All right. Now, here we go. The Jordan was not only the cradle of the Kikar, its own circle, but it was well watered. Like the Garden of Yahweh. Go back to the Garden of Eden. How was the Garden of Eden watered? It says a, a river ran through it. Now, four, four channels came out of the garden. When, when the river broke out of the garden and went out, it was four rivers, but it was one river while in the garden. It says it's water like the Garden of Yahweh, a single river going right down the middle of it. This is exactly what happens to the Kikar of the Jordan. You've got the Jordan going right down the middle. And also, it is watered like Egypt. Hmm. Who's putting this passage together? I think you know Moses. I've heard that name. Where did he grow up? Egypt. Do you think if he saw this hydrological system playing itself out before his eyes when he's sitting around in that area for a few months, um, you think he might, when he writes this out, go, oh, yeah, it's like Egypt, too. Um, how is Egypt watered? The annual inundations overflowing of the Nile in the Delta region would overflow its banks. They would plant behind the receding waters in the newly deposited silt. That drove a Nilotic civilization for 3,000 years. And it's the same system. It's a Nile in miniature. It, the Jordan overflows its bank. Now, if you go to Israel today, you can pole vault across it. That's right, about 20 feet across. And uh, just this little rivulet almost <laughs> going before you. And, but in antiquity, the Jordan River, especially within, say, 20, 30 kilometers of the Dead Sea, was probably about 250, 300 yards wide all the time, even in the dry season, all the time. Um, when it flooded, it would go up to three or four or five kilometers from its bank on e from the channel on each side. So it could be up to 10 kilometers wide. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to The God Solution, you can go to GodSolutionShow.com for more on The God Solution. We are listening to a message from Dr. Collins about the discovery of the biblical city of Sodom. Glad you're tuned in. You have to put all these things in, in motion, all these little strands of evidence. By the way, how do we know that? We archaeologists know that. How do we know that? Look where they built the settlements all through antiquity. Look where they built the settlements. Nobody builds closer than that to the river. Why? Because it's a rather dangerous thing to do. It may not always go that wide every year, but one of these years in 
10 years or 15 or 20 or 50. They know that they can't build so close to the river. So they don't. Um, so this is exactly as the Bible describes it. It is the well-watered circle, the kikar of the Jordan, and it is watered with a single river going through it, and it does this annual inundation event, just like the Nile. So there it is. Lots of rivers coming in. Now, these springs, uh, stars represent springs. You can see that there are, and I could put hundreds of those over there on the east side of the river because the entire Transjordan Aquifer disgorges right there. Water runs out and across the road all the time. You see it. We even have <laughs> this little spring coming out across the road, and it smells terribly. It's got a lot of sulfur and iron in it, and there's little perch swimming in it. I don't think anything could live in that. And it's really amazing. But it's all over the place. Water's everywhere in this area. All right. Now, it also said that Lot could see the entire circle of the Kikar. He looked over and could see the entire Kikar of the Jordan. Here's the, here's the key question. And, and by the way, if you're going to do science, if you're going to do history, if you're going to do archaeology, if you're going to do apologetics, you always have to learn to ask the right question. Questions are really, really important to frame the correct, to get to the correct answers. The only question that you should be asking, that one should be asking with regard to that passage that we read was what? Where was Lot standing when he lifted up his eyes and saw the whole circle, the Kikar of the Jordan? Did you know that every single one of our detractors who's tried to disprove what we say about this site being Sodom never, ever mentioned this? In fact, in all the, I've had five different articles, just had another one written, uh, against my position. Did you know that not a single one of those articles ever mentions Genesis 13? They avoid the primary passage on the location of Sodom like the plague because they know if the minute they get into it, they're, they're disproven. Well, um, where was Lot standing? Well, let's look at it. Now, north is that way. <laughs> Okay, north is kind of going to your left, so you see the Dead Sea there. By the way, those are the two traditional sites for some scholars, some conservative scholars, uh, have Babadra and Numira as, uh, as sites. By the way, both of those cities were destroyed at least a half a millennium before Abraham was ever born. So scratch those off your list. I don't care what, I won't mention names. <laughs> I should, but I won't. All right, Bethel and I, that's where Bethel and I we excavated uh, at Bethel and I for several years, six years. And uh, so we know what you can and can't see from there. What you can't see is that. You can't see anything toward the south end of the Dead Sea because it's totally blocked by the hills. But what you can see is that. Okay? And if you get over, just move over a little bit closer to the scarp, you can see Jericho. You can look over and you can actually see right below you. You can see the entire circle of the Jordan, just like the Bible. In fact, the, word, the Hebrew word coal is used there. Lot says, uh, the Bible says Lot could see the entire Kikar of the Jordan from where he was standing. So they were in the vicinity of Bethel and I, obviously. And it says Lot traveled eastward. It doesn't say made a right turn or left turn or went into that. It just says he went eastward. Well, it's kind of a no-brainer, isn't it? That's east. And pitched his tent, Ad Sedom, as 
far as Sodom. Why would he say that? Why would the text say that? Because you might think, now we'll check it out in reality in a minute, but you might think going in that Sodom would be as far as you could go on the opposite side of the key car without going off of it. In other words, he went eastward and traveled Ad Sodom as far as Sodom. By the way, why would Sodom be on the eastern side, way on the edge? You're going to see in a minute. So there's Lot standing, viewing the Kikar. Therefore, the city of Sodom can only be there. By the way, why is Sodom there? Why is Jericho where it is? The flood, the inundations. No, because so, all the settlements are up around the, the edge. And not there. It's impossible to be there. I'm not even going to say it's not even probable that it's there. It's just categorically impossible. <laughs> okay? All right. We're not talking philosophy here. We're talking archaeology. I can say impossible. All right. So that's the... Now, was that tough? You could have you done that. I mean, if you had an interest in it and you didn't do it because you weren't interested in it, right? Um because there are a whole lot of other things in the world to be interested in. Not everybody's interested in archaeology, but I was, and I read the text, and there it was, and you could have done the same thing. That was not a hard thing to do. So, come to the second thing. Right time. It's got to be in the... Now, why, why is right time important? Because you might go to the place where the Bible says the city should, should be located, and you might find one, and you start excavating it, but what if it's just Byzantine? Or what if it's just Iron Age? And there's nothing there from the time of the characters and the story that you're, that the Bible talks about for this particular city. Well, then it's not it. It's not it. You gotta have it all. Can't leave anything out. Well, the story of Abraham, all scholars believe, except for the ones that are wrong, <laughs> that Abraham belongs to the Middle Bronze Age. Now this is, I don't want to get into how we configure the biblical chronology and all that. But, and it isn't like you think. Um, but culturally, he belongs to the Bronze Age. Cultural. Everything about his culture is Bronze Age. It doesn't belong earlier. It doesn't belong later. There's nothing about that story that can be played out in any other place other than the Bronze Age. And uh, Kenneth Kitchen, University of Liverpool, uh, Great scholar. You've got to get his book on the reliability of the Old Testament since we're giving out references. There's one on the reliability of the Old Testament. Keep that um, by your favorite chair or near your bedside because it will just put you out. <laughs> so you'll never get a whole lot of it read at one time. <laughs> but, you know, you just kind of work your way through it. But anyway... He will help you get Abraham squarely in the Middle Bronze Age for a whole gob of reasons. Now, here's the early Bronze Age and the Middle Bronze Age. There's a gap between them called the Intermediate Bronze Age, but I didn't include it. But Abraham and Lot belong there biblically. But that's not all there is of Sodom and Gomorrah in the Bible. There's the cities of the plain mentioned in Genesis chapter 10. And um, by, the, by the way, I'm not going to talk about this, but they're mentioned in south to north order from Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, Zeboim, Antalasha, or Laish in the north, which is Tel Dan. Um, here it is. So if you're going to find Sodom, the right time would be what? 
we have to have early Bronze Age Sodom. And by the way, how do we know Genesis 10 is early Bronze Age? Because it's the building of the first, of the first great cities. Urbanization occurs in the early Bronze Age. Not before. Okay, so the first urbanization, that's, that's, that's a no-brainer. There it is. So we have to have, if we're going to find uh, Abraham's Sodom, then we've got to find all, all of it. And that means we have to have a city that spans that entire period of time. Okay? So it has to go all the way back. Now, um, I like this slide because uh, these are all the ancient trade routes of the area, north, in the north area of the Dead Sea. All those little dotted lines, trade routes. If you follow those trade routes out, you can see all the locations you can go to. You can go to Engedi and Hebron and Jerusalem and Bethel and Ai and Bechan and Pella and Gilead and to uh, Rabat Ammon, Arman, Heshbon, Madaba, to Zoar and so on. Uh, you can go all those locations. Now, there's something interesting about this map. By the way, how do we know where all these uh, roads are? Because the modern roads follow the same path. The geography, the topography demands it. Okay, and, and there's another way you can tell. If there's a city built here, a substantial one, and one built over there, you walk it, and you go, closest distance between two points is maybe not an exact straight line, but it's the easiest topography that gets you there in as straight a line as possible. So it's really easy to draw the roads. Besides, the Romans helped us out because we can go to many of these roads and still find the Roman mile markers on the roads. So they were definitely using the more ancient ones as well. Now, what's there? Jericho. Now I want you to look at the other side of the river. When we started this, when we started this hunt for Sodom, when I started back in 1996, actually I really started in earnest around 2000 because we were working on another excavation. But I had just noticed in 1996 that I had read the passage and it bugged me that everybody put it in the south because that's not what the passage said. And so I, I kind of put that off. So in 2000, we uh, shut down our West Bank excavation and I didn't have anything to do for the next few months. So I said, ah, oh, Sodom, I'm going to go back and, and deal with that. Well, when, I, when you go fishing through the literature trying to find archaeological sites up in that region on the east side, where I, that's a big intersection. A lot of roads coming together. And you look at all the Israeli and American and European publications, all the excavations that have been done, everything's been uh, reported. It's blank. I'm going, that can't be right. The Bible says there's a whole civilization, major civilization. In fact, the Bible calls it Haaretz HaKikar. Genesis 19.28, Haaretz HaKikar. What does that say? Haaretz, the land. That means this is a social, cultural, ethno-linguistic group controlling, controlling this area because that's how the Bible uses Haaretz, the land of Israel. The land of Egypt. The land of the Philistines. And here we have the land of the Kikar. An identifiable, separable, ethno-cultural complex of civilization. Well, I hope you enjoyed the first part of the message from Dr. Collins about his discovery of the biblical city of Sodom. I ask that you'd get his book on that same topic. Well, the important thing to remember here is that the Bible is trustworthy. 
If you tune back in next week, you'll hear the second part of the show and the second part of the message about finding the biblical city of Sodom. But this is just one more example of the trustworthiness of the Bible. What's exciting is that we can know that because the Bible is true, we can have confidence about eternal life. You know, Jesus said that God loves you and that you are created for relationship with him, but that you and me have been separated through sin from God. He also said that he paid the ultimate price for our sins, dying on the cross, so that anyone who believes in him would be saved. If you've never taken that step to believe in Jesus, I implore you to do that today. You could even verbalize that right now, saying, Jesus, I believe that you are who you say you are, that you died on the cross for my sins and rose again to give me new life. Please be my Savior and my Lord. I hope that you'll go to GodSolutionShow.com to find out more about The God Solution and to check out past shows. We have more than 300 past shows up, and they are excellent. And uh, while you're there, you might consider uh, leaving us a note and letting us know what you think or anything like that. And definitely, you might even consider partnering with us by donating to the show. Well, like I always say, an open mind, honest heart, humble disposition, and diligent search always lead to Jesus. I believe that with all my heart, and I trust that you'll take what you're learning on this show and share it with your friends. Thank you so much for listening. Tune back in next week for the second part of this show on finding the biblical city of Sodom. We'll talk to you then. You've been listening to The God Solution. We hope that you were encouraged by what you heard today and are better equipped to share Christ this week. You can get the audio from today's broadcast and all the past God Solution shows at GodSolutionShow.com. Thanks for listening and being a part of The God Solution.